The scripture we are reading together this morning is on page 1041, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Luke, 25, Luke 10, 25 through 37, page 1041. <clears throat> On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And, and who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, And took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Good morning. Andrew, thank you so much for for reading our passage for us. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we pray that as we spend time thinking about your word uh, this morning, we pray that you would show us Christ as we were just singing about and cause us to rejoice and delight in him this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to admit that um, when I found out I was going to be preaching on this passage 
this morning, uh, my heart sunk a little bit. And uh, you might be wondering why. Um, the reason is this. When you look at this, at, at this passage, it seems to be suggesting that we can be saved by our own works and not by grace through faith. I think that's what it seems to be suggesting. So a man asks Jesus in verse 25, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus replies in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. It's that final sentence, do this and you will live. How do we get eternal life? By loving God and, and loving our neighbor. That's what it seems to be saying. Which, of course, would undermine salvation by grace through faith, wouldn't it? As evangelical Christians, that, that's what we believe. I mean, we had our bite-sized slot earlier, thinking about that, that we're saved by faith in Jesus, by God's grace, and not by our works. When I look at this passage, I'm thinking, whoa. Jesus says, do this and you will live. Do you see I was a little bit nervous? Why I was a little bit nervous about preaching this passage? Part of me f- feared that I wouldn't be able to square um, what, we le- what we see in these verses with other parts of the Bible, which teach so clearly that we're saved by grace through faith. Now, having spent some time studying this passage over the past week or so, um, do I believe that Jesus is suggesting here that we're saved by our works? No, I don't. In fact, I'm confident that he isn't. And I hope that as we consider the main question that Luke is addressing in these verses, that we'll see why Jesus is not teaching us that we're saved by our works. So what what is the question that Luke is setting out to answer in our passage? What drove him to to record this encounter between Jesus and the expert in the law? Here's the question I think he wanted to answer. Why are some people not saved? Why are some people not saved? Have you ever wondered why your cousin Jason, your neighbor Diane, or your colleague Muhammad... um, are not saved. Well, this passage will shed some light on that. Now, why would Luke want to answer that particular question? Why would he want to demonstrate why some people are not going to heaven? In order to answer that question, I think we need to, we need to consider Luke's original purpose for writing his gospel. So at the very beginning of his gospel, in the first few verses of chapter 1, he, he, he says that, that he's writing to Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus might have been a new Christian or someone who was investigating Christianity. And Luke says that he's writing because he wants to give Theophilus certainty about the things he's, he's, he's heard regarding Jesus. In other words, 
Luke wants Theophilus to be confident that Jesus really is the Son of God. Now, how is Theophilus going to be convinced that Jesus truly is God's Son? So we know that he's already heard the gospel, but we don't know if he believes it yet. Now, to some extent, that's, that's irrelevant, because regardless of whether or not he does, he might still have a few questions for Luke. And I suspect that one of the foremost questions that someone in the first century might have had would, would have been, if Jesus really is God's son, why was he rejected by the religious Jewish establishment? Why on earth would so many of the religious leaders, those who were educated in Judaism and in the Old Testament, dismiss him? Surely, if he, if he really was the Son of God, they, of all people, would have believed in him and followed him. These people knew their Old Testaments inside out. And this is the case with the man in our passage who questions Jesus. How is he described in verse 25? He's an expert in the law. This guy's a first century um, version of someone with a PhD in Old Testament studies. Wouldn't you expect this man to be a prime candidate for following Jesus? He, he, He knows the Old Testament messianic prophecies. He's anticipating the the arrival of the Messiah. And as we look at today's passage, we'll, we'll find no evidence that this man decided to follow Jesus. In fact, all the evidence points in the opposite direction. As we consider the expert in the law in today's verses, we'll learn why many people today also don't follow Jesus and are not saved. So back to today's question, why are some people not saved? The first reason is this. People think they can save themselves. People think they can save themselves. Let's read from verse 28. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? What does Jesus appear to teach that we need to do in order to to have eternal life? That we need to love God and that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is what Jesus appears to be suggesting. So this man has a follow-up question, who is my neighbor? And it's a fair question, isn't it? If if you're saved by loving your neighbor, and you want to know who who he or she is so that you can go and do it. And this this man isn't so naive as to think that he can love everyone as himself. But he does think he might be capable of loving at least his neighbor as himself. He thinks that might be achievable. In short, this man thinks he can save himself 
by loving his neighbor. And we see this very clearly in, in the man's uh, reason for asking the question. So Luke writes it down for us there in verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Why, why was this man asking Jesus the question? Because he, he believes that he really can justify himself. Another way you, you could say it is uh, he thinks he can prove himself to be righteous. He's a man who thinks that the way for him to obtain righteousness is through his own good works. He thinks he's able to prove to God that he is righteous and therefore deserving of eternal life. Now, if you're familiar with Luke's gospel, alarm bells would be ringing at this point. So in chapter 5, you don't need to turn there. In chapter 5, Jesus is condemned by some religious leaders. Why? Because he hangs out. He eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. And they're disgusted disgusted by this. Jesus, why would you hang out with them, with sinners? To which Jesus replies, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who has Jesus come to call to repentance so that they may be saved? It's not the righteous. It's sinners. Now, look, this doesn't mean that, they, that Jesus here is implying that there's a category of people that exists who are inherently righteous. There is no one righteous, not even one. Both the Old, both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach us that. Rather, Jesus' point is this. If you think you are righteous, you will never turn to him in repentance. Why would you? Why would you need to? You'll only turn to Jesus and follow him if you're convinced that you're a sinner. Now, let's return to the expert in the law. What are we learning about him? He doesn't think he needs Jesus. He's not even really a fan of Jesus. Verse 25 says that the reason he's engaging with Jesus is to test him. This man wants Jesus to slip up. This man thinks he's perfectly okay without Jesus. He thinks he can be righteous on his own. And so he thinks... He can save himself. And herein lies his main problem. And folks, this is what those who do not confess Jesus today as Lord also think. They think they can save themselves. The Muslim man thinks he can save himself by doing good works, or at least he hopes he can. He thinks he can save himself. Good work, my good deeds will outweigh my bad, my bad deeds, hopefully. And the atheist thinks they can save themselves. Now you might think, wait a minute, the atheist doesn't even believe in God. 
They don't even believe in life after death. And that's true. But that doesn't mean they don't think they'll be saved if they're proven wrong and God does turn out to exist. Many atheists think they'll go to heaven if there is such a thing. The, the comedian Ricky Gervais, who is very open about his atheism, uh, wrote a blog post several years ago highlighting how despite being an atheist, uh, he, he'd never broken any of the Ten Commandments. So he, he, he writes, commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And then under it he writes, I definitely do not. Excellent. I get one point. And then he writes commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And then says, tick, another point to me. And he proceeds to do this for all of the Ten Commandments. And then he says, I make that ten out of ten. Not bad for an atheist. How did you do? What does Ricky Gervais think? He thinks he's righteous. He thinks he doesn't need Jesus. Why are some people not saved? Because they think they can save themselves. But not only do they think they can save themselves, even when presented with evidence to the contrary, they refuse to admit that they cannot save themselves. Our second point is, People refuse to admit they can't save themselves. It's, it's one thing to believe you can save yourself when, when your capacity to do it has never been challenged. But it's quite another to believe it when, when your inability to do it has been exposed. This is what I think Jesus is doing Uh, to the expert in the law in verses 30 to 37. He's highlighting this man's inability to love his neighbor as himself, and as a result, his powerlessness to save himself. And he does this, of course, by, by sharing a story which we've come to know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. In this parable, there's, there's a man who's made the 17-mile journey uh, from Jerusalem up in the mountain down to, to Jericho, situated 3,000 feet lower in a valley. And on his descent, he's attacked by robbers, stripped of his clothes, beaten up, and left for dead. Jesus then tells us about three people who, who see him. And how they each respond upon noticing him. There's a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Which would have sounded odd to the listeners. If I told you an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Portuguese man went to a pub. What would stick out in that sentence? The Portuguese man, right? You know how the story usually goes. An Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman or a Welshman went to a pub. And trust me, it's not because Portuguese men don't like going to pubs. 
That's how the story goes. And similarly, when, when Jews would tell stories, it would often begin a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite. The Israelite represented the layperson, whereas the priests and the Levites, although also Israelites, of course, um, well, they had particular spiritual responsibilities. They had religious authority, which the lay Israelite didn't. Now, oftentimes in these stories, what would happen is the lay Israelite would be portrayed as the hero. But notice who Jesus makes the parable's hero. It's not an Israelite. It's a Samaritan. And as many of you know, the Israelites hated the Samaritans. They would call them half-breeds because their, their ancestors, who were Jews, had intermarried non-Jews. But Jesus makes a member of the group they abhor. He makes him the hero. And the relevance of this will, will become apparent a bit, a bit later on. Now, what did both the priest and the Levite in the parable do while walking and seeing the half-dead man lying on the ground? They ignored him. They crossed the road so as to avoid him, pretending not to see him. But look at how the Samaritan treats him. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. What does the Samaritan do? He pulls out all the stops to help the stranger. Stopping Stopping to help would have meant putting his own life in danger because he too could be attacked. And not only does he then go on to disinfect and bandage the man's wounds, he, he also takes him to an inn, pays for the accommodation, and then tells the innkeeper, hey, look, whatever extra expenses he incurs, put it on my tab, and I'll pay, I'll, I'll pay for it all when I get back. Folks, who loves like this? Do you know anyone who loves strangers like this? And I don't just mean, can you, can you think of people who've shown the, the occasional act of love or of altruism towards a stranger? Of course you can think of examples of that. I mean, do you know anyone who always always loves people, even strangers, to this degree. Remember how the expert in the law had asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He had asked that so that he could know 
whom he needed to love as himself. Jesus, just tell me who I need to love as myself. I'll make sure I love them. Through the parable, Jesus is showing him the extent to which he needs to love if he is going to be able to justify himself. And the bar couldn't have been, couldn't have been set higher. So Jesus proceeds to ask the, the law expert a question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Did you notice Jesus' question? Who was a neighbor? That's slightly different, isn't it, from, from the law expert's original question. He'd asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus asked, who was a neighbor? Folks, this man had asked his question so that he could know who he needed to restrict or confine his love to. Who is my neighbor? But when Jesus rephrases the question to who was a neighbor, he's telling him, hey, you need to be asking a different question. You need to be asking, am I being a neighbor? Am I being a neighbor to anyone who I see is in need? And here's why I think Jesus rephrases the question. You see, the, the Jews would have believed that it was um, that the person who classified as a neighbor was a fellow Jew. That's how they would have interpreted uh, the, the commandment to love your neighbor in Leviticus 19. Love your fellow Jew. But by introducing a Samaritan into the parable, Jesus is saying that loving your neighbor transcends racial, religious, cultural, and social barriers. Jesus is saying that loving your neighbor involves loving even your enemies. And even when it's a great cost to yourself. So... If this expert in the law wants to justify himself, well, here's the standard he's going to have to live up to consistently. Friends, our passage began with the expert in the law testing Jesus. But by the end of the passage, we have Jesus testing the expert in the law. Will he really be able to justify himself by being a neighbor? I think everything in this passage is telling us that he won't. Firstly, the bar is set so high. Secondly, when he's asked, who do you think was a neighbor? What does he reply? The one who had mercy on him. Why didn't he just reply the Samaritan? That's the answer. The answer answer is the Samaritan. It seems like he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. And if he can't do that, how on earth is he going to be able to love a Samaritan as himself? 
the expert in the law, is now being tested by Jesus. And I think his silence after Jesus says, go and do likewise, is very revealing. Earlier, he'd, he'd asked Jesus clarifying follow-up questions. And here is the perfect opportunity for him to ask another one. How on earth am I going to do that? How on earth am I going to love people like that? Even people I hate. It seems like this man thinks he really can save himself. He doesn't admit that he can't. Friends, the only way we can be saved is if we realize that we cannot save ourselves and admit that we need God to save us. Jesus came to save not the righteous, but sinners. This is why we learn in in chapter 9 that he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem where he will die on a cross, doing it to rescue helpless sinners like you and me. Brothers and sisters, this passage isn't teaching that we can be saved by our works. It's teaching just how much we need Jesus to save us. So will we admit that we need him? If we think that we can save ourselves and refuse to admit that we can't, we cannot be saved. But if we admit that we can't save ourselves and we trust in Jesus as our Savior, well, then we can be confident that God will save us. Later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So do you know what question people ask him when he says that? They ask him the question any of us would have asked him, who then can be saved? To which Jesus replies, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Folks, salvation is humanly impossible. We cannot save ourselves. God is the one who makes salvation possible. And he does so through the cross as Jesus dies there. We're saved not by our works, but by grace through faith, as we learned earlier on in our bite-sized slot, which I loved, and it just complements the sermon so well. Now, just to, to, um, to, to end our sermon, I, um, I suspect some of, some of you might be thinking, well, if, if this passage isn't about teaching us to, to love God and love our neighbor, should we not bother, bother with that? Of course we should aim to love God and love our neighbor. We should do those things as Christians. But let's never think that doing that is what is going to save us. Because you and I will always do that imperfectly. We are saved by grace through faith because Jesus has been so kind to us to go to the cross for us. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for your mercy towards us. Thank you so much that Jesus went to Jerusalem, to the cross, for our sakes, that we could be saved. Father, we pray that we would, that you would cause our hearts to rejoice in this truth, in your kindness towards us, in Jesus' love for us. And Father, if there's anyone here who, who thinks they can save themselves, Father, we pray that um, you would cause them to, to see just how amazing your offer of salvation is and that anyone who comes to you through your Son can be saved and inherit eternal life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.